Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we're taking a look at Nightcrawler. No, not the X-Men. The dark satirical drama written and directed by Dan Gilroy. I'm looking for a job. Who am I? I'm a hard worker. I set high goals, and I've been told that I'm persistent. Morning news. If it bleeds, it leads. We find our viewers are more interested in urban crime creeping into the suburbs. Think of our newscast as a screaming woman running down the street with her throat cut. Home invasion, triple murder in Granada Hills. We got there before the police. What if my problem wasn't that I don't understand people, but that I don't like them? What if I was obliged to hurt you for something like this? I want something people can't turn away from. Jesus, you sound like Lou. I think Lou is inspiring all of us to reach a little higher. I will never ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Nightcrawler tells the story of Lou Bloom, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, who makes a career out of filming L.A.'s grisliest moments. When Mr. Gilroy spoke to our students, he spent much of the discussion focused on his modern-day noir. So if you haven't seen Nightcrawler, you might want to. Go ahead, I'll wait. Pretty amazing, right? And it's his directorial debut. After 25 years as a writer in Hollywood, he was ready. His credits include Kong Skull Island, Real Steel, The Bourne Legacy, and of course, Free Jack, with Mick Jagger as a future cop. Lose your mind, and you can live forever. Free Jack. Doesn't that sound perfect? Well, Mr. Gilroy wasn't such a fan. If you put a lot of time into it, you can start with a horrible movie like Free Jack and wind up with this. There's, there's hope for all of us. I, you can't escape IMDb. We know it's funny, when I started, there was no IMDb. It was actually really difficult to find people's credits, and it was kind of nice, actually. Because we all have movies in there. I met my wife on Free Jack. I met Renee on Free Jack. I was the third writer. And she replaced Linda Fiorentino. The cast, you probably never seen it. The cast of Free Jack is, was Anthony Hopkins. So it starts out sounding really good. <laughs> then Emilio Estevez made some good films. Yeah. Mick Jagger and Renee. And somehow it never really fully gelled. Even if he was less than thrilled with the final movie, at least it made it to the screen and into my VCR. But that was not the case when he was one of the writers on Tim Burton's Superman Lives. The problem was, back then, comic book movies and Tim Burton himself were not such a sure thing. I got brought into Superman Lives, Tim Burton was doing it, John Peters was producing it, Nick Cage was Superman, Chris Rock was Jimmy Olsen, it was very wild. It, was, it would have been so cool. Unfortunately, the budget kept going up, Tim had just come off Mars Attacks, his stock creatively wasn't as high as it probably hopefully would have been, and after like a year they pulled the plug on it, it was very painful. Very painful. I worked on that for a year. If you want to see some of the behind-the-scenes chaos, check out The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, by John Schnepp. 
you know, in case you doubt, Hollywood can be a torturous path. Luckily, Dan Gilroy has his family. His wife, Renee Russo, is the star of Ransom and Free Jack. His brother, Tony, is the Oscar-nominated writer-director of Michael Clayton. His other brother, John, edited Rogue One. And all of the brothers work together on The Bourne Legacy. Working with family can be a blessing, and maybe a bit of a curse. You know, I think the biggest arguments I've ever gotten to my life have been creative arguments with people. And there was a time that Tony and Johnny, when we were younger, got into terrific creative arguments. But we, we've, as we've gotten older, I think our sensibilities have sort of entwined. So I would advocate working with family or friends if you feel, I mean, I'm not saying get yes men or people like that who are gonna agree with you. I mean, it's okay to have people who aren't gonna agree with you, but I, I, in general, don't work with people who, if it's gonna be explosive, horrific, right. <laughs> destructive fights, and really creative fights, I think, because there's obviously no winner. And people have a tremendous emotional investment to their opinions. And and so I think the thing about working with my brothers and Renee is that we have a language at this point in our lives that we just, we have a sensibility, we like the same things, we understand the same things, we've been through similar experiences. Mr. Gilroy was developing the story that eventually became Nightcrawler for almost two decades. So the genesis of this was, this goes back, I've been thinking about this for 20 years. 20 years ago, I went into something called a bookstore. They don't have them anymore. <laughs> it was a bookstore. And there was a big picture book about a guy named Ouija, who was a crime photographer in yes. the 1930s. He was the first guy to put a police scanner in a car and he drove around New York City and he took these insane black and white photographs of crime. And I thought, wow, that's just a really cool idea for movies. Joe Pesci did the movie, time went on. I moved out here and about six or seven years ago, I heard about these people who did the job now. So I go, oh, this is like the modern equivalent of this guy from the 30s, these guys with video cameras. So I thought, wow, this is a great world. I can't believe nobody's ever done a movie about this before. So I started thinking, oh, it's like a conspiracy movie. It'll be like a murder mystery kind of thing. And I kept trying it. I kept beating my head into it. I tried it many times. And I was just like, didn't feel right. And then a couple years ago, I came up with the idea of the anti-hero. And then that fit. So the answer to your question is, there are many scripts I've worked on for myself where I start, I'll get 10 pages in, 40 pages in, 70 pages in, and I'll go like, I have to be honest, I go, this is not working. This, this, I've, I've invested seven months, and this is not, I've happened many times to me. And you have to step back and be honest and go, it's not working, and put it aside, and then think about it some more and try something else, and then try something else. And so I, it's not, sometimes it doesn't come easy. Once he decided to do the film, Mr. Gilroy threw himself into learning everything he could about the news industry and its unique set of characters. I do a lot of research for a world. So like Nina's dialogue, for example, I will do a lot of jargon. Like, people have a way of speaking in a job. So it makes it sound, right away you want to sell the reality of it. So like Nina's talking about, are you my fill-in operator? And I want a walking stand-up. Put the neighbor here and the kids with their mother by the door. You can get it back from 216. Yeah. And then I want to lay in some nap sound. Let's loop the neighbor's dog barking. And then try taking the, uh, the crying kid from B-roll and dropping that in the background. Got it. You my fill-in operator? I did a lot of research about it. She's always throwing at these things. So yeah. just so just right away I'm going like, I know I want her to speak like one of these people. And then the hard thing about dialogue is, dialogue is moving the story forward without letting the audience know that you're moving the story forward. So that's the hard thing about dialogue. It's not just dialogue. It's coming up with the concept of the scene. This is the hard part of screenwriting. The hard part of screenwriting is taking the story beat by beat, but every time you finish one scene, what's the next scene? 
and how do I tell it? What's, what's, what's the best possible way that I can compress and tweak it and put a spin on it and then, then start to write the dialogue? Because so often, I think you can wind up, if the scene is just flat, if the scene has not been conceived, if the scene is just a standard, seen it before, cop procedural, whatever it is, if you don't have some spin for it or something different, no dialogue in the world is going to sound good. It's really, this dialogue goes hand in hand with the concept of the scene. And the concept of the scene is shaped around the idea of how can I go across this little ravine of the story. I'm going to build a bridge, but I want it to look different than any other bridge. So that's really, it's, it's wrapped up in that. When you read the screenplay, it almost feels like a graphic novel or, or like someone's telling you the script. It pretty much ignores every rule of screenplay format. But... It works. There's no interiors and no exteriors. There's no day or night. There, it's basically one long run-on sentence with a lot of little triple dots in between. <laughs> and I play with the font a lot, where I expand the font really big and make it small. And I was in an odd mood, and I was experimenting with the style. And and I just, it's just, I just like that style. I've never used it before, and I've never used it since. I'm writing another script right now, and I'm not using that style. For this style, it worked. It's, uh, it was like. Uh, it was like a stream of consciousness a little yes. bit. I read a lot of screenplays. I'm a screenplay nut. I like to read other people's screenplays because I like to see what people are doing stylistically because you want to play with the form. I mean, you can just do the dry form and you can, I mean, it works if you had a good story and whatever, but it's fun to play around and make it your own. You should look, there's a lot of people doing a lot of different, slightly different variations of things and it's kind of interesting. Double spaces, triple spaces. Uh, cut twos or no cut twos, uh, you know, and just over direction, no direction. I had no parentheticals in this. That's the other thing. I never indicated at any point what somebody was thinking or feeling, and I never, I really almost barely described what people look like or anything like that. It was a very, it was a 104 page script. It was very reductive. Once he wrote the script, he knew the story was just too important to him to allow someone else to direct it. I believe if the writer and director are different, many phenomenal, great films have been made that way. One of two things are going to happen. Either the director is going to go, I like the writer, I want the writer on the set, let's talk about it, let's collaborate, and somehow you get a similar vision. Or the director is going to say, I don't want the writer on the set, or I want to hire other writers. It's a director's medium, ultimately. And so, writer's intent has a much greater chance, obviously, of getting through if it's the writer-director. I think, I think a writer-director has a unity of thought that you don't often find... I mean, there's, look, there's so many great movies made the other way. I, they're just... There's a unity of thought sometimes, like Michael Clayton. Tony wrote and directed Michael Clayton. It's it's a hermetically sealed thing. It's just like there's no daylight between the writing and the directing. It's just perfectly. And I think there's not much daylight between the writing and directing and this. You do get to the point when you see enough of your work get up on screen that it's like, oh, dear God, I have to do this myself. <laughs> it just is too painful. No matter how much they're paying you or what it yes. comes out like, and, and it just, it's just a certain point you go, it's just no, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. That wasn't what I intended across the board. So like this one, when I wrote this one, it's this is a very personal film to me. This is the, all of the ideas and themes. This is this is this is a window into my my views right now. I mean, this is this is what I so it's a very personal film to me. So I couldn't envision giving this to anybody else. And the choices that we made on a minute by minute basis would have been made very differently. Yeah. And the effect would not have been the same. So I had to direct this. Mr. Gilroy was equally as passionate about filming this story in Los Angeles. And it's one of the few films that really makes L.A. at night feel like 
L.A. at Night. It was an L.A. movie because this is where these people do this thing. There was really no other place to set it, so I, I wanted to shoot here. I, I'm from New York, but I think L.A. is just really physically beautiful. I mean, I find it physically beautiful, and I find it really woefully, oddly represented in film. Because I feel most of the time when I see L.A. in film, a lot of times it's like desaturated, literally desaturated. And it's kind of yellowy and gray, and it's always hazy. And if it's not that, then it's like cement and freeways. And it's just not what I see. I mean, just driving here tonight, it's physically beautiful. Coming up over the hills, you can see forever. There's this weird desert light. And it's it's really not cement and freeways. LA, I'm from East Coast. I know cemented freeways. This is, this LA to me is like, it's not even like fully civilized. It's like we've colonized it. I feel like, I feel like, like a wave could come in. And if it receded, it would just wash any trace of us out. It would just be like, it would be back to where it was which I like. So we wanted to shoot LA as a place that was physically beautiful. So we were picking locations where civilization butted up against an ocean or a national park or a desert. It's like the sort of, sort of civilization sort of petered out. And we also wanted to get a sense of how big it was. So we were shooting really wide angle. We, I, we went down to 14 millimeter lenses. I wanted you to feel that when you watched the movie, when you walked outside, if you'd seen it in LA at night, you felt like you were sort of stepping out of the movie into the movie. So soft focus to me was not what I was looking for. There's only a couple soft focus shots. We were trying to do deep focus because it brought in as much of the landscape as possible. And then the other thing about shooting at night in LA is there's no traffic. So you can move. We could do these double moves because you're out in the middle of the night. And I just love the energy at night. Energy is just, the nighttime is just, it's just cool. It's just night, there's so much going on at night. It's just like, it's a whole, it's another city. Nobody's around and it's just like, uh, it's just beautiful. Despite his being a rookie, Mr. Gilroy was able to get Oscar-nominated actor Jake Gyllenhaal to star in Nightcrawler. Mr. Gyllenhaal has had his share of creepy roles before, like Donnie Darko and even Prisoners, but this is by far his creepiest. There are many actors who will never work with a first-time director. They establish actors, and it's probably smart. I mean, because really, they're, they're trusted. So first of all, Jake is an extraordinarily bold artistic spirit that he would entrust his career with me. So I flew to Atlanta, he read the script, he liked the script, so I sat down with him. Jake said, hey man, look, I'd love to do this, I want to be a collaborator and a creative partner, and I want to rehearse. And I was going, absolutely. So working with Jake became a process of, I had an actor who was so deeply committed to the part and so willing to do almost anything. The only thing he asked of me was something I was already willing to give, which was, can we try stuff? Let's not think about whether it works or not. If it doesn't work, we won't use it, but can we try? And I was always, yeah. If we have time, let's make time, let's try. So for us, it was always a thing of experimentation. It was different takes on the set. The whole thing for me when we were, on the, when we were doing a scene was how much time can I buy to allow Jake to do as many takes as he wants to do or I want to do to experiment. It was never about like, I have a certain frequency and you have to match that frequency and we're gonna be here until we have it. It was never about that. It was really finding this character because this is a very complicated character, and we didn't know ultimately what takes ultimately were going to wind up in the film. Invariably, what we wound up doing is we wound up using a lot of takes where he's smiling. Again, because I wanted to keep that connection between the audience and, and the character. The second we started going takes where he's dark or loud, then it's like people go, oh, yeah, he's, he's, the cra he's crazy. That's what this movie's about. So we never wanted that. So working with Jake was really like, finding a partner who, was, who wanted to experiment. Now that's not gonna work for a lot of directors. Jake never changed a word, by the way. But we experimented deeply with the character, way off the page, and found a lot of great stuff. 
Jake Gyllenhaal turned out to be more than just a great performer. He was also an ally who helped Mr. Gilroy fully realize his vision. People are looking at you as a first-time director, and they're they're so unsure. <laughs> See, what happened was, because Jake and I creatively partnered, we formed a team that, that nobody could touch. Because Jake is the money. Your star is the money. So when your, when your star gets something financed, few people ultimately are gonna wedge the star off an idea. If I was out alone, if Jake and I had not partnered, I would have been susceptible to many strong winds blowing about ideas and, and processes and things like that, which that would have made it even more difficult. Because what happens a lot of times, first time directors, you'll get your star, you'll get your money, and then they're gonna look at you and go, you can't do that anymore. That's not, and you're going like, this is really important. And they're like, oh, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. If you're allied with your star, there's nothing they can F and do. Because your star's gonna go, Amber is gonna do that. And we had that situation. Mr. Gyllenhaal even went the Christian Bale route, losing a ton of weight for the role, much to the chagrin of the producers. This is a producer's nightmare. He lost 27 pounds for this part. Two days before we started shooting, we had our first camera test. And we were over at the Color Lab, and we're, all the big people were over there looking at it, and now suddenly there's Jake having lost 27 pounds. And it all makes sense now, but believe me, the producers were flipping out. Right. It was like, oh my God, I don't recognize him. He looks bizarre. This whole thing is not gonna work. He needs to gain 10 pounds before we start shooting. But Jake and I were like, nope. Yeah. I like it. Do you like it, Jake? Jake likes it. I like it. I think we're going to do about that. Yeah. Considering this movie's budget, the look of it is just stunning. That's thanks to Robert Ellswit, the Oscar-winning cinematographer of The Town and There Will Be Blood. I was terrified. I am a first-time director working with an Academy Award-winning cinematographer, Robert Ellswit. <laughs> I mean, four months before sitting down with Robert, I was I was spending three hours a day studying cinematography so I could at least have conversations with him. <laughs> it was, I mean, Robert Ellswit is a great guy, but he's an incredible talent. And, and I was more nervous about talking to him as almost even talking to Jake. So Robert had just finished shooting Inherent Vice, and I had him for three months before we started shooting, and he lives in L.A. So Robert and I started getting together twice a week, three times a week, and we started shot listing. Well, I would spend hours before each meeting where I would like, okay, because I'm now telling Robert Ellswit what my shot list is. I still can't believe it happened. Uh, but I did. I have a visual sense of what I wanted, and we started talking, and Robert was very gracious and tailored and tinkered and whatever. So by the time we got, I went to every of those locations four times. I was massively prepared. I blocked. I saw. I, I had a very clear sense, and I had a shot list. But there were definitely nights that the shot list went out the window. The shot list will go out the window usually because you're running out of time. And when you're running out of time, shots just start falling by the wayside. Yeah. Or you're running out of money and they'll come up to you and they'll go, you don't have the condor, you don't have this, you don't have that. Or the shot list will change because you find something that's better. As an example, the scene at the end when Lou brings the footage of Rick dying. And it's the two of them, it's a two shot, and they turn and she goes, how much do you want it? You tell me, blah, blah, blah. Wasn't that your partner? As a matter of fact, that's him. Oh, I'm floored. I mean, it's amazing. Thank you. Oh, thank you. 
Okay, so we had, I think, five shots on our shalas that night. That was the master, where we just shot a master. And we had paused the tape at such a weird place where Rick was like looking up like this. It was so strangely, absurdly, horrifically funny. We were kind of like laughing, Robert and I. And by the end of the first take, Robert and I looked at each other and go like, I don't think we need any more footage. <laughs> and it's like, I think we'll just go with the one shot. And I called my brother, John, who's the editor, and I said, look, I, I think I'm going to go for the one shot. And he goes, dude, he goes, don't leave me hanging. you got to get me covered, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm going, no, I think I want to go with the one shot. So, I mean, there's, there's times that you, that you do definitely, you do want to accommodate the location. All this preparation was necessary since Nightcrawler's low budget meant they could only shoot for a handful of days. It was a low budget movie. We made this movie for $8.5 million in 27 days. So there was no time. We were moving so fast that locations were dropping out. New locations were popping up. We had 84 locations if you count all of the shots at the beginning. So we were doing double moves many nights, double company moves. So there was no time to like to be that formal. Yeah. You know, I'm sh Kubrick and all these people who have like and David Lean probably you have all these years to make stuff. I'm sure. You could go nutty with it. The only idea we had is like we had gone to locations. We we knew what lens we were using. We knew the blocking. We had a shot list, but there was no. We had a vague color palette, but it wasn't really a color palette. It was pretty naturalistic, to be honest. It wasn't it wasn't as formal as that. Maybe the next time. I don't know. Mr. Gilroy's attention to detail continued all the way through post production. The music is incredibly important in this movie. Yeah. Incredibly important. Robert Ellswit says that music is more powerful than, than the visuals. Robert Ellswit plays, well, what I do is important, but of course the music is more important. The music is an incredibly powerful tool. And so when I sat down with James Newton Howard, I told him, I said, look, I said, the music in this movie is the music in his head. This is the soundtrack in Lou's head. We never pass moral judgment on this character through the music. And the example would be, if for one minute we had put a Kronos Quartet, tight violin, you would have gone like, oh yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> he's a total nut. Instead, the music at the beginning is this soaring, uplifting triumph of the human spirit. And when he steals the bike and goes in the salvage yard, it's like a, it's like a cue from Wally. It's like, oh, this little industrious guy is just, instead of like, oh, he, just, he actually just stole something. Or, or when he's dragging the body, it's an electric guitar that just starts to like get really loud and powerful. And so we celebrate him. So the music is doing this tremendous psychological job for us. It's keeping people who are engaged in the film, it's keeping them from judging him. That's what this music is doing. And it's beautiful music. James did an incredible score. The only thought I had was, I have to do everything I can for the audience to like this guy. That's my only thought. I thought, if, not like him, but if you can not write him off. So cinematically, Robert Ellsworth and I, we never put a shadow across his face when he's doing something wrong. In fact, usually when he's doing something wrong, we would usually try to pull back and make him small in the frame. So it was like, like trying to minimize what he's doing. Oh, don't judge this guy, you know? Because the act speaks for himself. He kills seven people in this movie, if you add it all up. I wanted it to be like a punch in the face. I wanted it to be shocking. I wanted it to be like psychologically like, what the F? It's like, what the hell just happened? I don't, why am I engaged with this guy? Why? 
why do I like him and what's wrong with me? And that's what I wanted. These are all the questions that I wanted. Because we are part of this world, you know? We're all in it together. When you watch Nightcrawler, it, it feels like it's dog day afternoon on wheels. Or maybe what a road movie would look like if Sidney Lumet had directed it in the 70s. People say this is like a 70s film. In the 1970s, there was a lot going on. The Vietnam War was winding down. There was a lot of energy about changing the world and a lot of idealism. So in this movies in the 70s, people said stuff. And the reason they said stuff is because if you were in the 70s and you made a movie and you didn't say something, all of your friends would go like, what the F are you making a movie for if it doesn't say anything? You were utterly looked down upon. I mean, it was like assumed you were going to say something. Yes. Movies now are almost all escapist. They're escapist by definition of being superhero movies or sequels. It's all about escapist entertainment. What I believe about this film is it's rare in the sense that something's being said. Some, I'm trying to say something. And I do believe that because we live in an age of escapist entertainment, not too many people are trying to say larger things. So, I mean, there probably are some. I, mean, I don't want to say there aren't anybody, but I think if you want to succeed, do what people are not doing. And right now, nobody's putting messages in movies. Don't make a message movie, because it'll be boring. <laughs> but, but if you want to put in something that you feel strongly about, that has some societal value that you think other people, it's a plus in a movie. It's not a negative, I think. I'm not sure about you, but I am ready to watch this again. Thanks to Dan Gilroy for the lesson in how to get away with murder. And to all of you for listening. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor based on the guest speaker series produced and moderated by Tova Leiter. The episode was edited and mixed by Christian Hayden, produced by David Andrew Nelson, Christian Hayden, and myself. Executive produced by Jean Sherlock, Dan Mackler, and Tova Leiter. Special thanks to Mike Seville for co-moderating, and to Ariel Seagard, Robert Cosnahan, Sasha Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to go watch me some Free Jack. <laughs> <laughs>